hello everybody it's time for the bookworm i'm your host ed fortune and i'm here with Cy Lloyd again Cy, you don't sound like ninfa i don't I, I could try but i don't think i'd do too well she might get angry uh, you don't you don't want ninfa angry no you don't no. so coming up on the show we are talking about books because that's what the show is all about so i will be reviewing 221 baker streets and I will be reviewing Anno Dracula. So we're going for a bit of an alternate realities, alternate history, Victorian steampunk detective nonsense theme. Yeah, I couldn't fit that on the schedule sheet, but never mind. Um, we'll also we also have an interview with uh, the creators of Two Two One B, which is a fantastic anthology series. We're talking to Brendan Connolly later, uh, providing I can say the words of Brendan Connolly. Um, and yeah, but coming up next, I think we have some book news. Across the world, 24 hours a day. So, uh, top, top of our news, um, George R. R. Martin, who occasionally doubles as Evil Santa, uh, has hit the top of the bestseller list yet again with his young adult novel, uh, The Ice Dragon, which is a bedtime story told by by the by the people who live in the world of ice and fire. So, it's not a game of it is a Game of Thrones book, but it's not the one you were expecting. Where's the next Game of Thrones book? Come on, George. Well, well, the next game. Wasting of your time, George. The next game runs book is this one, and then and then he's done my. But it's not the game of first book I want. And then then he's got. Oh, he's got another one. It's coming out this Christmas. That's it, not it either. That's not it either. It's <laughs> the world of ice and fire, which looks fantastic, and we talked to him about it a little while mm. ago. You can find it in the archives, which is on Tumblr. If you go on Radio Bookworm on Tumblr, you can find our George Orwell Martin interview. You can also find it by StarburstMagazine dot com. Um, anyway. Anyway. Um, so yes, I. Um, the Ice Dragon is great, by the way, by the by, and I think lots of parents have gone. I need to buy a Christmas book. I need to buy a Christmas book. I need to buy a Christmas book. Oh, oh I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Right. Oh, uh, hang on. Just check it for boobs. No boobs. Brilliant. Because uh, it is George oh, Martin. It's for kids, though. So. It is for kids. So. But, but kids are also like a well, uh, sort uh, of more market for breasts, aren't they? I, I have to say because I haven't actually read the books. Tell the person. Is there is there the same amount of, of breast in the book as there is on the TV There's show? There's less breast, but more intimate parts. Ah, intriguing. Yeah. Mm. Quite quite detailed descriptions. If you were, okay. If you're a young person who needed directions, <laughs> um, it, it can help, I, I would imagine. Um, Dirty man. Dirty George. <laughs> but uh, anyway... Um, in your bed. You see, you see now, now I'm trying to think of an appropriate segue to anything else. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about giant evil worms um, again not helping not helping Penguin Random House has uh, kind of a big big sad R here have cancelled the Black Crown project Aww. now Black Crown for those of you who weren't lucky enough to have fun with this uh, was a novel slash book uh, plus online game thing 
which was really, really creepy. Basically, you started off on an autopsy table and you were some sort of thing. And then your adventures continued as you continued to be a thing in a really strange world. Um, very kind of, very Brian Lumley-esque, very um, H.P. Lovecraft-esque, mm. creepy. The outsider. Gen- out the outsider, gentle, mm. gentle horror kind of stuff. Um, they got in touch with the, those lovely chaps at Feel Better Games, who are better known for for the steampunk game uh, Fallen London. Right. Uh, Fallen London, of course, is staunchly not a steampunk game, despite the fact that it is. Um, right. so, why not steampunk? In the same way that Sisters of Mercy aren't goth. Um, right, yep, got it. Yeah. Um, Fallen, the Fallen London creators created a thing called Black Crown for Penguin Random House. It was uh, an amazing experiment where they created this really strange world. Um, sadly, they just didn't, what it looks like is it, they didn't quite get the revenue model sorted. Mm. Um, and it didn't, you know, it, to be honest, the Black Crown was really, it was a strange pitch because it, you know, it's that kind of, res- it's not even Resident Evil horror. It's, it, you know, I can remember playing it and I had to stop about 20 minutes in to go, I am wigged out. This is, this is really cre- creepy. And I like creepy games. I thought this was quite creepy. So, you know, I didn't get to the point where I started spending actual money to play the game further. Um, though, though I, I have paid actual money to play bits of Fallen London because it's mm. a great interactive game. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, essentially, this is an online web-based game where bits of the story are dependent on your decisions and your choices, but they're really well-written bits of narrative. So these chunks of narrative will tell you a story as you're going forward, and you will grind and work forward to essentially be rewarded with dense pieces of text that will tell you a further story. Um, wonderful way of writing a book, wonderful idea, um, interesting experiment. They've, they also did a similar thing with Erin Morgenstern's The Night Circus, which was a similar sort of an, sort of an idea. Um, hmm. We'll, we'll we'll see what happens in the future. Hopefully, Penguin Random House will come back to that and try it maybe with something a bit more populist. Um, maybe maybe vampires. Maybe high schools. Um, you know, something something that more people can get into. Vampire high schools. Vampire high schools. Um, talking about young people in high schools. Um, Hodder and Staunton have acquired The Catalyst, the first novel in a fantasy crossover series from 15-year-old... <laughs> Not De- that we're bitter old hacks. No, we are. We're entirely bitter old hacks. Um, debut author, Helena Coggan. Helena Coggan, congratulations. Well done. Well done, oh, that yeah, girl. Yeah, Living yeah, the dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely well done. Um, the book, which Coggan started writing when she was just 13, oh. is about a teenager called Rose who lives in a world divided between those with magic powers and those without magical powers. Um, there was a catastrophic war. To be honest, it sounds kind of off the peg. I'm not being mean, but it sounds it sounds like young adult fantasy. It sounds very much, you know, you've got these two factions, you've got uh, uh, an old enemy, you've got romance. You know, yeah. Mm. But at the same time, though, you know, you, you get adults making a living from writing that sort of fiction, mm. and young people do buy it. So why not? You know, if she oh, is no, genuinely exactly. talented, what else are you going to write at that age? Oh no, exactly. I look forward to it. It's and and you know, she the, the blurb says she's writing about a teenager. I think it was was it Robin Hobb said to you in the inter- in her interview view, write about what you know. A teenage girl has much yeah. more chance of writing accurately about a teenage girl than than I do at this point in my life. 
I think one of the things is because it seems like a reflection of what's already out there, I'd be much more interested in reading a young adult book written by a young adult. I agree. Um, mm. And I, I want to, I want to sit that down and maybe, maybe compare it to me. I, I want to see what the book's like and then see who I can compare it to. And I also just want to, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Um, we talked to a little while ago um, Anna Catapalliano. Well we apologise. <laughs> Very sorry, Anna. Um, she's also 15, 16. She was on various Nine Worlds, worlds panels. Um, she was completely lovely. And I had since read her work afterwards, uh, after meeting her at Nine Worlds. And she is cracking. She's really, really good. Mm. Um, so there is definitely a rise of, of you know, young female voices writing a fiction. And it's a great thing. It really mm. is. Mm. Um, but on the other hand... I, I just also hope she's had decent advice on the contract. That as well. True. Mm, yeah. Um, you'd hope so, wouldn't yeah. you? Really yeah. Child labour. Well, there's very careful, <laughs> careful responses to that, isn't it? Also, um, uh, first news. Um, have got um, the how do I, how do I, the letter of the king by Tonk Dracht, which is a, a Dutch novel that was written in 1962. Uh, the letter for the king was published by Pushkin Children's Books. Um, and was recently published in English just last year. It's considered it's considered a classic um, in its native Dutch. It's only starting to penetrate our market now, which is really sad when you think about it. Um, but it is a well-loved Dutch classic, um, and they're really pushing it now. First News are really um, are really trying to to promote um, the letter for the king. I do you know what? I think I might read that over Christmas. Because there, there seems to be a big kind of push to get that book out there. Um, yeah, definitely. I might join you in that. Right. Um, I think. Have we run out of news? Have we, have we run out of news? I don't know. I think we've begun to run out of news. There's probably loads of really fascinating stuff that we've just. Uh, there's, there's lots of things about um, cutbacks, unfortunately, in various publishers and things, and that thing's happening. What's happening this week on Amazon versus a shirt? Oh, I don't care. I think, I think uh, it's gone quiet. It's gone very quiet. I Almost too quiet. Indeed. I think they've run away to a romantic retreat in the lakes. <laughs> and they're secretly, secretly having their, their passion. Uh, bad, bad. Do, you, do you think they quite got together in a corner somewhere at that um, comic convention in the Lake District? <laughs> yeah, Kendall. Yeah. Um, Did anyone send in their fiction about that, by the way? We, we've had one or two slightly disturbing things, yes. We've not <laughs> put anything yet on the air. If you still want to, you can write us a 500-word-ish sto- ish story uh, along the theme of Hachette and Amazon. In love! Um, oh, yes, and I apologise. Uh, we will get one of our voice actors to read it out if it is successful. One of the voice actors that we keep in the cupboard, perhaps, locked up. Oh, we do keep several <laughs> voice actors locked up in the cupboard. If you listen to the entire, st- if you listen to the FabioIntheInternational.com station as a whole, which you should do, obviously, because you embrace the alternative, um, you will notice that we have various voice actors locked in chains in the basement of Fab Towers. Embrace the alternative. This is Fab Radio International. So the theme for today's show is alternate realities inspired by Victorian literature. Um, now there's an obscure thing for you. So 
Uh, I'm going to be talking about 221 Baker Streets because, oh yes, Sherlock Holmes. Um, now, the interesting idea behind 221 Baker Streets is it's not one novel, it's an anthology uh, presented by Abaddon Books and edited by a short story remix dubber specialist, David Thomas Moore. So, as, as you know before in the past in the show, um, we don't tend to go through every single short story because that tends to make for quite a dull review. Mm. What I do is I cherry pick. I'm admitting that I'm cherry picking. Don't write in saying, you're cherry picking. Of course I am. It's a review. Um, so, the premise is this. Alternate reality versions of Sherlock Holmes. It's fairly simple, fairly straightforward. It's got a lovely cover where you have the revolver on one side and the rig on the other side, which I kind of like. Mm -hmm. um, and a strange alternate reality cityscape as well. So we get stories like um, A Study in Scarborough, which... <laughs> which I hope. I hope. <laughs> uh, which is by Guy Adams. I, I do like Guy Adams' stuff. He's very, very good. Um, this is... A story told from the perspective of someone who plays Holmes on the radio, don't you know? Um, it's great fun, it's anarchic, it's weird, um, and you know, it very much uh, it's in the middle of the book, but it's kind of for me, it sets the tone as to what it's like. Um, another one that he that I kind of enjoyed quite a lot was and might tell I'm playing for time as I try and get the name right. Is a scandal in Hobohemia, which is what the story which is what the anthology starts with. Um, scandal in Hobohemia, and Hobohemia is very much a pastiche. Um, not strictly Holmes and Walsh, well, well, it's not really a Holmes and Watson story. It's just got some really really odd ideas and weirdness to it. One of the ones that um, it kicks off the anthology quite well. Um, it's about you know homeless homes. Why not? Um, one of the ones that I really liked is Jenny Hill's Parallels. Now, teenage girls writing fan fiction about Sherlock Holmes, and and there's a crime you see, and there's an investigation. Great stuff. Kind of very much a kind of you can almost see the author reading for a whole load of. Holmes fan fiction, Sherlock fan fiction, elementary fan mm. fiction, to create a kind of short story world which is all about, you know, the two main characters, the Holmes and Watson in this particular story in Parallels, are two teenage girls at high school. Right. But they, they, they fit into the roles of Holmes and Watson almost perfectly. Um, what uh, 221 Baker Streets does is it kind of what what they've done is they've created this glove which is Sherlock Holmes is shaped and then they've they've shoved different hands into it to see what they get. So you kind of get this really kind of strange mix. One of the criticisms I've noticed about the books is people are going, Oh, it's not really a Sherlock Holmes story. There's lots of these stories that aren't really Sherlock Holmes' stories. And it's like, well, no, they are quintessentially almost all of the characters or some sort of renegade, some sort of rebel who are brilliant and against the social norms, yeah. which to me is what Holmes is about. It's not just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Holmes is not your Victorian gentleman. Holmes is weird. Yeah. You know, you know, and he, he stand out in the modernizations that we now have, where mm. both Elementary and Sherlock, yeah. 
those versions of Holmes are weird. All the versions of Holmes in this book are very, very strange indeed. Is it time to refer to your T-shirt, Ed? Oh, I'm wearing a, um, a Holmes T-shirt. If you're, you can, if you're watching us on the webcam, you'll be able to see it. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to see it. Thank goodness, um, I've been picking my nose. Uh, I, I, I'm standing in front of the webcam. Obviously, if you can't see us via the webcam, then you're not just you're simply not special enough, or you're listening to us later because we don't record it on the webcam because it's terrible. Um, but yes, I'm wearing a, a Holmes T-shirt, and it's the house logo with Holmes written in it, and it's Holmes CD. Um, that's kind of relevant to my point. I forgot where I was talking. Uh, Innocent Igris is a great short story. Um, it's, it's full of world building. It's a Victorian setting where everyone is basically some sort of superhero. Um, and Holmes' superpower, of course, is the fact that he's a brilliant detective. So it kind of it kind of subverts the idea. Uh, a woman's place is Mrs. Hudson. Now, we've had quite a few Mrs. Hudson-style stories before. Paul McGee's um, has, has ran away with the idea of doing Mrs. Hudson-style stories in the past. Um, but a woman's place... Um, is a great cracking little story which fo- focuses on her um, kind of it was it was one of those ones where I was just like it's by Glenn Men and I was like on the one hand it's a really nice idea and on the other hand it doesn't quite make it all the way through um, I got that wrong you know I said a woman's place is by Glenn Men and that's not the case so this is why okay, it's Emma Newman oh my god Goodness, it's Emma Newman. That's why I quite enjoyed it. That would explain it. She's lovely. Uh, Final Conjuration. (laughs) Right, okay, get this. You've got a a magician who summons a demon to investigate some mysterious deaths. What's the demon called? The Sherlock. Um, Essentially what we have in this incredibly messy review, this has been the messiest review I've ever done, but I'm trying to convey to you that this anthology is anarchic and chaotic and very Holmesian. It's very much a series of detective stories. There's been lots and lots of Sherlock Holmes style alternate reality kind of anthology ideas before. This is just the latest long theme, but that's because quite easily you can you can throw yourself into the idea. Holmes is such an iconic character. He's such a straightforward superhero that you can kind of throw all sorts of ideas and stories straight into. Mm. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. It was one of those books you can easily dive into and out of as well. I don't recommend... I Normally I say with anthologies because, because the editor has carefully aligned them on top of each other. You should read an anthology in order because the editor has spent a lot of time putting. Nah. Um, dive in, have fun. Uh, with apologies to the editor. I'm sure if you read them in order, you get a much more um, smoother experience. But I just found myself diving into the ones that took my fancy because there is such a diverse collection of ideas in here. So it's kind of a structuralist review you've done there. That's why it was messy, because you're a structuralist and it's a messy book. And, uh, yeah, enjoyable. Um, But a lot of fun. Um, Possibly not the best Sherlock Holmes anthology in the world, but also, you know, but the most fun and certainly the one with the freshest ideas. Um, So if you're looking for something new or if you're a Hollywood producer looking to to reimagine the world of Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) then then maybe that as well. (laughs) Coming up next, more Holmes nonsense in our interview. But do you want to talk about where we can get that from? 
Oh yeah, you can get it from Abaddon Books. Um, you can get it from your Waterstones. You can get it from a news agents. It's called 221 Baker Street. It's edited by David Thomas Moore. Um, people who have contributed to it include Guy Adams, Ian Edgington. Ian Edgington's story is great, by the way. Um, Adrian Tchaikovsky, who did the story of the demons. Uh, Jenny Hill, who did the story of the, um, with the, the fan fiction. And so on. A lot of fun. Across the world, 24 hours a day. And on the subject of alternate ways of doing a Sherlock Holmes story, we talked to Brendan Connolly about his latest project, 221B. Guess what that's about? Embrace the alternative with Fab Radio. Brendan Connolly, welcome to the Bookworm. Hi Ed, how are you doing? Tell us all about your latest project, 221B. Okay, 221B is uh, the series title for a series of mystery novellas. And I think most people will recognise that as uh, the address on Baker Street where Sherlock Holmes lived. Um, What sets this apart, I think, from a lot of other Holmesian stories is that this isn't set in the world Arthur Conan Doyle created. It's set in our world where Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character and it's set in the present day. And our lead character is a young lady called Emily Wagner, who um, works as a temp, and she goes pillar to post, place to place. She's not really found her calling yet. She's in her early 20s. She's out of university and very smart, but hard to find a job that's sort of uh, going to keep her uh, keep her involved, really. But she ends up doing some temp work, a bit of filing, a bit of photocopying at an estate agent's who are where 221B would be on Baker Street. And, uh, of course, one of the things that happens is they get a lot of letters, fan mail almost, for... Sherlock Holmes, and she gets a look at some of these letters. And it's episodic, yes? So what happens is each of the installments, each of the episodes, I suppose we'd we call them, uh, is a standalone mystery, but there is a sort of arc sweeping across the whole thing, much the way, you know, as we've got used to from, from, a, from a lot of television, but we don't see so much in... Uh, in in literature, um, each episode is a standalone mystery with a, its whole own set of clues and a solution. But there's something else going on in the background as well. So if you read the entire season of six novellas, you also get this this second story. So what are your plans with the series? Yeah, I don't know how much I can say to be honest, Ed. But um, uh, uh, I'll say for now that what, what's going to happen is that. The, the first novella will be along uh, now, and then you'll get another one soon, and then another one, and then another one. And then uh, by spring of next year, you'll have all six, hopefully. I hope uh, people come with us for the whole trip. Um, and then whether we do a second series of these or not depends on uh, um, not so much on the ideas. I'm telling you, there's, there's mysteries coming out of the, out of the wall, um, but uh, on, on how well received the, the format is. I think it's great fun, and, and I'm sure... A lot of people have a lot of fun with this. Um, but 
you know, it is episodic, and if you use your, your imagination, you can see that it might work just as well in other episodic media too. Do you plan for multiple authors? So that's a good question, actually. The first season is just me. Um, it's all plotted out all, already, and we're, we're a good way into uh, uh, realising it. Um, in theory, it would be a bit of a dream, really, for other people to really kind of get Emily and understand her and want to contribute. Um, much like the first season, any subsequent season would have to have a, an overgoing uh, arc. So um, uh, I would have to work with with anybody who wanted to, to write uh, an official uh, Emily Wagner story. But this this is all uh, it's all very hypothetical right now, Ed. There's a growing trend to make these things gritty. How gritty and realistic is it? Yeah, I, I don't know how very real it is. I think I follow the same rules that Conan Doyle followed. There's a sense of, uh, you know, being rational at work here. A good detective will take something that seemingly doesn't make sense and reveal to you how it makes sense. And to convince a, a reader that something makes sense, that thing must be ultimately rational. Um, otherwise, they're just going to see the, see the holes in it. So, so the format each time is the... The, the processing of something seemingly completely irrational into something completely rational. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, it's, it's stylized. You know, it is a little stylized. I think um, most murders and crimes that happen in, in real life are nowhere nearly as interesting as the ones home investigated. Um, uh, it, you know, certainly not as a, as a piece of entertainment. They're, they're very... Uh, very morbid and, and quite quite upsetting. Um, so that so the choice of of mysteries is you know to have some stakes and the association of real stakes and real crime, but to also you know let things uh, let things be a little bit larger than life. So Holmes isn't a character, but there's a lot of Holmes mythos in in this and sort of swirling swirling around. But um, in in reinventing. Uh, the lead character. I, I say reinventing, really, in the sense that I deliberately chose her to be not like home. So as I sort of thought about what Emily was going to be like, um, I gave her characteristics that Holmes didn't have and didn't give her something that he does have. So he's incredibly arrogant and very confident all the time. Now, she's very smart, and that brings a certain confidence, but there are other things she's less confident about. And she's certainly not very pushy with people. She's much more of a people person than, than he ever was. And you're not going to find her mucking about with a 7% solution. Um, and uh, she doesn't play any musical instruments. So <laughs> in many respects... All of the sort of trap, and she certainly doesn't wear a deer stalker and smoke a pipe. So a lot of the the imagery of Holmes is missing, but it is still a story about someone that you you should be able to get behind and follow them. And because it's got this six story arc over the season, solving each of these mysteries and going for each of these stories does does affect her. And the bigger story is about is about this girl who's um, unwittingly and unexpectedly uh, become a consulting detective. Do we need more Sherlock Holmes stories? There's a lot of homes about. Um, there's a there's, you know, there's two of our biggest actors have have got the character as their figurehead role, really. So we've got Robert Downey Jr. playing a sort of a, a bit more of an action man, Holmes. And and um, you know, I enjoy the films in so much as is when there's a mystery. I, I love a good clue and I love a good solution. There's nothing I like more than than the curtain being pulled back, Ed. And and if the curtain's pulled back and it is just the little Wizard of Oz back there, and it is just a little man that's making all this happening. Uh, I, I find that fascinating. I know some people aren't as impressed by that, and they want the curtain to be pulled back, and what's going on behind the curtain needs to be really big. And I think with Guy Ritchie's films, 
rather than make it be about what was behind the curtain, they made it very often be about the explosions that were going on in 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 front of it, but because that gave them the uh, the requisite requisite scale and the sort of the lack of anticlimax. Um, uh, Moffat and, and Gattis, uh, uh Sherlock Holmes is much more my cup of tea. I think the first episode of that was was tr- tr- tremendous. And um, it did the, the first episode of the third season as well. And I like a lot of the other episodes too. Um, uh, and I think that it's incredibly well cast. But they're doing something kind of different to, to what I'm doing. So I'm not worried about... Um, I'm not worried about, worried about comparing to them, comparing with them in any sense. I mean, if there's really some sort of direct comparison, it's probably a lot of, of uh, you know, the classic locked room novels, really. But then again, the tone is much more modern than a lot of those. Hopefully, I would like to think I've got something new. 221B has a very interesting setup. Do you intend to use it for other fictional characters? That's a fantastic question. Um, I don't plan to, but you may have just inspired me to. Um, there are an awful lot of fictional characters that I find really interesting. And um, I think that uh, they had a lot of fun that we didn't get to have. And, and because 221B, in a sense, is about Emily having a lot of the fun that um, Holmes and Watson had, um, while, of course, getting into a lot of the trouble they, they got into too, thinking about some other characters who've also had a tremendous amount of fun, um, I can see how that would be appealing for, for people and, 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 of course, for, for characters. And as I said, you've just put the thought into my head, but hold that thought, I'll get back to you on that. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one book for company, what would it be? <laughs> you don't know that I'm not. <laughs> Maybe I already am. Um, I think it would be um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland because it's so dense and every sentence is, is worth reading over and over and over again in isolation, almost. Um, there's not a wasted, uh, wasted black mark on the page in, in that book. That would be my pick. How different is 221B from the journalism work that you're better known for? It's a, it's a totally different endeavour, and it's very hard to change the gears from, from one to the other. Um, there's a certain rhythm and cadence that you settle into when you're working in each that doesn't work for the other. So even sort of intuitively, this sort of metre that you sort of your heartbeat gets set to, really, you have to, you have to change almost that. But then again, it's a completely different job as, as, as well. I mean... Uh, this requires a completely different kind of research. I mean, if you were to go look through my Google searches that relate to uh, my blogging, it's quite safe, right? I'm not going to get arrested. But if you go look through my Google searches that relate to plotting murder mysteries, and I look like a very, very dangerous man. Um, And also, the thing about this is because it's not time-sensitive in the same way. I can go to bed and um, uh, I can write this when I've got an idea, whereas if I'm... Uh, working on the news cycle and uh, a big story spits up, I've got to kind of turn it around pretty quickly, under the gun a little bit, really. Simpsons or Futurama? Futurama. Watson or Holmes? Holmes. Truth or beauty? Each is a way of representing the other, I think. They're not the same concept, but each describes the other. Mr Connolly, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr Fortune. This is Fab Radio International.
Hello there. So, um, this week I shall be reviewing Anno Dracula by Kim Newman, which was first published in 1992 and has been reprinted a number of times and is still pretty well available in good bookshops. Um, So, Anno Dracula... um, it's kind of a detective story, but not in the whodunit sense. Um, the reader pretty much knows whodunit right from the beginning. And it's set in an alternative London, uh, but the, the, the alternative is it's, it's... First of all, it's set in the London of uh, Dracula, um, but... Not that Dracula was particularly focused around London, but it, it, it's set in the the, 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 the sort of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but with the alternative ending that Dracula won. The uh, the sort of cabal of heroes didn't manage to kill him in the end. He did turn Mina into a vampire, and he went on to uh, basically conquer England. In this version, Dracula has, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's spread his vampire plague across half of London, um, including Queen Victoria, who he is now married to. Um, Dracula himself doesn't actually appear much in the book. Um, not much of a spoiler to say that he does turn up, but he's not a major physical presence in the book. More, he's sort of a, a looming influence over the whole plot of the story. Um, The story itself is based on Jack the Ripper, which I shall have will have been talking about uh, in a parallel book, also written by Kim Newman, next week, which I've already Uh, (laughs) pre-recorded. Sorry, my my head's just blank. Sorry. (laughs) Yes, yes, time. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly. Shall shall have been going to have been born. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um... So, the, the the plot is loosely based on on Jack the Ripper. Um, Jack the Ripper in in history wasn't initially known as Jack the Ripper. That 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 was um, a media label, which uh, which which the newspapers came up with after someone purporting to be the killer wrote a number of letters. Um, Kim Newman himself is a. A, a bit of a scholar about that period of history, and also a bit of a scholar about uh, Dracula myth and Dracula media. And you know, basically, if a new Dracula film comes out, Empire Magazine will hire Kim Newman to review it, um, <laughs> uh, which he did, and he gave the latest one two stars because it wasn't very good. Um, but anyway, th- it's kind of his twin obsessions: Dracula and um, Jack the Ripper, and it- it's. It's absolute, the, the book is absolutely chock full of, of Jack the Ripper lore. The, the, the investigation of the murder is, although ostensibly it's what brings the characters together, the book itself is um, more about the kind of political struggles uh, around his fictional London and his fictional England and what goes on. Around the, the sort of conflict between uh, vampires and uh, warm bloods, who are the, you know the people who are either who choose not to turn um, into into vampires. So the plot is that the silver knife, as the murderer is called at the beginning, is uh, a killer who's been killing vampire prostitutes. Uh, it's always prostitutes. With Jack the Ripper, it kind of was, yeah. 
I know, poor prostitutes. Um, uh, but yes, that's that's. I think probably since Jack the Ripper, that's the reason why it's always been prostitutes because he's such a, a looming kind of presence in the world of serial killers. Um, so Jack the Ripper's been killing particularly vampire prostitutes, um, and in Dracula's New Order, uh, that that stirs up quite a lot of trouble. Um, you know, you've got the uh, sort of puritanical anti-vampire brigade who are well behind Jack T. Ripper. Um, you've got um, you've, you've got all sorts of other factions. You've got uh, people saying that this is actually, you know, uh, the vampires themselves cleansing the streets of the of, of people giving vampires a bad name. You've got all sorts of accusations going on, and it's creating tensions. The main characters. Um, are Charles Beauregard, who is a, a complete creation of Kim Newman. Um, he's a secret agent of uh, the Diogenes Club, who's kind of a sort of uh, shadowy organisation, sort of somewhere between MI6, MI5, and I don't know, whatever club Mycroft belongs to. <laughs> um, I've heard the Diogenes Club before. Yeah, Kim Newman's also written a series of books and stories based on the Diogenes Club. Um, it may well be based on something else too, but Kim Newman's done a, a parallel series of books just about them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Charles Beauregard joins up with a, a vampire elder uh, called Genevieve Giudone, who anyone who knows anything about Kim Newman's books turns up everywhere. Um, she There's a version of her in... Um, the, the Warhammer universe, which Kim Newman's written for under the name Jack Yeovil. Uh, she makes a cameo appearance in the book I shall will have been talking about next week. Um, but Genevieve Dudonet is kind of... Uh, she's almost like Kim Newman's like literary paramour. He, he kind of... He, he talks about having to resist writing about her and put other, other, other female characters in his books because she's getting too strong. <laughs> and she, she, she's, she's great, actually. Um... She's she's um, a heroine, um, very much out of the order of the kind of fiction from this period. Uh, most you know, most Victorian fiction, women will conform to one of the three types: either mother, hooker, or victim. And she's she's none of the above. Um, and that's the same in all of Kim Newman's books. She's a very interesting character. Um, she's lived four hundred odd years. And uh, she's not your typical vampire girl. Um, she's not uh, a predatory kind of sexual creature, particularly. Although, you know, there are romance elements in it. Um, and those two of them sort of spend their time investigating Jack T. Ripper. The book itself is an awful lot of fun. It's full of historical and literary references. I've just listed some cameos here um, of other historical and literary figures from the period. But by no means managed to catch all of them. You've got the the other survivors from Dracula, so you've got Arthur Homewood, Lord Godalming, who was one of the the, the, the cult of people who were after Dracula. And he's he's turned um, as, as an establishment figure. He's become a vampire himself. We've got Mina Harker, also a vampire. Uh, we have Inspector Lestrade from Holmes. Um, mm. 
he's a vampire. You oh. sold that. And, and, as someone, uh, you know, it, it's almost... It, Kim Newman recognises that vampire stuff can be used as an allegory for pretty much anything, and he throws it all in the melting pot. So vampires are also a bit like the Masons. You can't get anywhere in the police force without being a vampire in this one. Um, um, so who else have we got? We've got um, Mycroft. Mycroft is, is uh, one of the leading figures in the Diogenes Club who's, who's employing the main character to, to investigate... Uh, Jack the Ripper. We've got uh, John Seawood, um, who is from Dracula as well, one of the Dracula survivors. I think in about 20 pages in, it's revealed that he basically is Jack the Ripper. Um, <laughs> th- th- there's no mystery in this. He, you know, some of the chapters are written from his point of view, and he's basically um, he's me- he's become mentally unbalanced from from what happened to his beloved Lucy Westenra in Dracula, and. Um, so he he kind of sort of half hallucinates that some of these vampire prostitute women are are his Lucy, and he's he's kind of cleansing them in a way that he he couldn't do for her really. Um, there's also characters like Fu Manchu, uh, Doctors Jekyll and Moreau make a cameo appearance. Um, for all you cinema cinema fans out there, there is uh, a cameo from Mr. Vampire, the Chinese hopping vampire. <laughs> Does he in fact hop round? Yes, he hops about. Um, he's a, he plays an assassin who is um, hired to go after Genevieve because she's annoyed one of the sort of foppish vampires who's lording it over everyone. She comes in and, and humiliates him, so he hires this. He hires Mr. Vampire to come after Genevieve, and he, he comes in and does some... Of the, some in a, a brilliant action chapter. It's just thrown in there, really. It's got very little to do with the rest of the plot. He just comes in and, and attacks her with his... Um, well, if you like Hong Kong action films, he's got flying sleeves, his, his arms extend and, and beat her up from about 15 feet away. He projects uh, swarms of butterflies. Uh, he hops about and, and generally does all sorts of unlikely martial arts things. <laughs> it, it's a fun book. I mean, there is a lot of sort of political allegory and stuff like that in it. Dracula has basically created a police state. Um, there's stuff to say about... Um, Feminism in there as well, uh, the role of women in Victorian England. Um, Genevieve kind of books the trend, and she's only allowed to do so because she's an elder vampire. Um, there's the, the character of Kate Reed in there as well, who is who is from Dracula, and she's a sort of uh, quiet, sort of mousy character until she gets vamped. And then is somehow sort of granted privilege. She's able to step out of the traditional female role. Um, so there's a lot of sort of it touches on issues, but overall it's a fun book. It's it's a good laugh, um, you know, with chapters like Mr. Vampire thrown in there. It has been my observation in a lot of vampire fiction that once you become a vampire, for some reason you are allowed to be more sexy and also be allowed to be more steadfast and forward. Um, it, it's absolutely true. The, the, the vamping seems like quite a good thing. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I have this theory about um, about vampires in general. Because you are essentially dead, you don't have to worry about your internal organs. So if you're a lady, you can wear the tightest corset you can find. Yeah, and it doesn't matter anymore. And it's, it's, it's same with gentlemen. You can wear you can wear you know all sorts of yeah. interesting clothing that would, if you were actually alive, kill you. 
It's true. It's kind of all about confidence as well, because with, with the vamping comes power, and it's about confidence. And I, I look at this, and I look at Kim Newman and the kind of guy he is, and I think it's kind of... Um, it's almost like a metaphor for when teenagers who are quite shy then suddenly find that in a goth or whatever genre they get into. And all of a sudden, you know, there'll be the quiet, shy boy who puts a bit of guy liner on in a big black coat and finds himself covered in goth girls. <laughs> uh, and and uh, he's so sort of uh, amazed and enchanted by this, he fails to notice that these goth girls are doing exactly the same thing, but with velvet and white slap. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of that reflection of that experience in a way. Um, so, um, who's it by? Where can we get it? It's uh, by Kim Newman. Um, it is published by, uh, let me find it, Simon and Schuster Limited back in 1992. You can get it from Waterstones, you can download it onto your Kindles. It's still quite widely available, and there are two sequels out already, uh, Bloody Red Barons and Johnny Alucard. I think he's recently done Dracula Cha Cha Cha, but I don't know if that's... Oh yes, that is as well, yeah, to the same... um, So, three sequels then. Um, Excellent. Coming up next, we'll be talking more about alternate realities and those dashed Victorians. the world the real alternative fabradiointernational.com so so far we have had Sherlock Holmes we have had Sherlock Holmes and lots and lots of different realities we've also had Dracula and lots and lots of different realities it's almost as if we are doing a show about alternate realities and remixes of Victorian stories. So, Jack the Ripper, then. There's yeah. a story that won't go away. It's never going to go away, is it, Jack the Ripper? Everyone everyone likes their killers. Um, everyone likes their intrigue. And there's conspiracy theories, too. There's a lot to Jack the Ripper to get your teeth into, your fangs into. Um, Sarah Pindra did a wonderful series called, I think it's Murder, Mayhem, and I think there's a third one on its way. Which is um, very much about um, that sort of a thing, mm. shall we say? Um, it's 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 Jack the Ripper, but the twist with Jack the Ripper in this particular one is that um, the uh, thing causing the murders is a thing, right? That, um, it's a demonic, and the problem is is that they've all got Victorian sensibilities, so their responses are to go. Um, actually, we're not that comfortable with, and they, you know, convince themselves that the the, the world is, you know, that these thing this thing does not exist because it can't possibly exist. It, can't, it doesn't no. fit in their Victorian. So it's just, it, and there's a, a lot of denying of the facts. Um. So yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, next next week I'm looking to to review another Jack the Ripper book, also by Kim Newman, and. Um, that that's uh, you know they, they actually came out in the same year. Um, I very much like Kim Newman, so I would never say that he kind of wrote them both at the same time on the back of each other because clearly they're both individual efforts. But <laughs> there is a whole thing though where you find that Warren Ellis is is, is the author who springs to mind. Where clearly they had a couple of years where they were immersed in one particular world. Yeah. They were doing various gigs, and you get the same idea pop- popping up. Again yeah. and again and again. Mm. Um, 
Warren Ellis keeps doing a thing where people get turned into grey mush by nanomachines that come from come from beyond the stars. Yeah. Uh, each time he does this story, it's a different story. Yeah. But the fundamental idea is still there. I can see what you mean. Let's not go into Frank Miller at this point. Oh, Frank, Frank Miller's <laughs> a, 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 again. Yeah. <laughs> he writes the same thing all the time. Um, but yes, um, this Lavitida did the great game, which is very much like Anna Dracula, but with Martians. All right. Uh, it's almost it's almost the same idea, but rather than Dracula, he he's put in the the H.G. Wells Martian invasion. Yeah, that could work. So, in, in which they don't die of, well, they they don't die. They just keep yeah. going. They, yeah. they understand, you know, immunization. Yeah. Um, and again, you get that same remixes where characters from periods of history keep turning up. By about the third book, he's starting to run out of Victorian characters. Um, How? <laughs> I mean, I took the liberty of looking at the Anno Dracula Wikipedia page just the, the, to see the number of actual walk-in characters there are. And oh, I'm like you know, because <laughs> Lavitida keeps killing them. Is the thing right, okay. he just quite cheerfully just murders just droves and droves of. Um, I tell you who I'd really like to see do a book like this, like a kind of a Victorian remix. Because this isn't steampunk; it's a remix, right? Reimagination. Um, I'd really like to see China Melville. Okay. Um, he put out a street station. Yep. Because um, he, he's quite surreal and he's quite strange, dreamlike in a lot of his writing. I'd love to see him take on the Victorians. It could. Uh, I, I imagine he'd probably melt it in some weird way. Uh, I, I would like to see that melted collection of yeah. of, of art. Um, again, we talked about this at the top of the show, but Fall in London is another example of a remixed. Victorian world interactive mm. fiction though, so yeah. you will have to have a access to. Uh, we, we, we've stayed away from steampunk quite well, really. I mean, it's it's quite zeitgeisty, and we haven't managed to talk about it that much, which is good. Yeah, um, <laughs> except when we just have. <laughs> Damn it! Damn, Damn you, steampunk, and your, your cogs, and your your ladies in tight tight basks. Um, okay, shall we? Shall we run? Shall we flee? Cheese it. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. We've been the Radio Bookworm. We can be found on Radio Bookworm on Twitter. Radio, we're at Radio Bookworm on Twitter. We're Facebook. We're Radio Bookworm forward slash Radio Bookworm. On Tumblr, we are Radio Bookworm. We're Mixcloud as Radio Bookworm. You can get to us on iTunes via the StarburstMagazine.com website. You can also find FabRadioInternational.com and all of the stuff that they do, embracing the alternative left, right and centre via FabRadioInternational.com. And you've heard all of that before, and you also know who I am by now, which is Ed Fortune, and I say goodbye, and... I, Simon Lloyd, also say goodbye. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Cy Lloyd, produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>